There is no error with your audio outputs. Do not attempt to fix any sound issues. We are monitoring you with this device. We control your options and settings. We are transmitting through your internet connection, but our signal is actually entering your mind, sending electrical impulses into the very tissues of your brain. Try to stay calm. We've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by... And good evening. Welcome to Paranoia Podcast. Uh, I'm trying a different uh, way of introducing the podcast tonight. I'm going to cut the shit. Welcome, Ron Patton. Well, thank you. It's really nice to be here for a change. Ron, you need to have less uh, air gaps in between your words. <laughs> All right, uh, so, can't be like Captain Kirk. But I'm not sure if it's gonna work. There you go. Was that pretty good or pretty bad? I don't know. Uh, pretty bad. It's something <laughs> we all need to work on for another show. You know, I, I used to be able to do the. Uh, I used to be able to do uh, Larry Flint. Oh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah from from the. From the movie, uh-huh. yeah, I used to be able to do Larry Flint, but I don't really want to do that on here. No, no, no. you're um, too professional. I'm way too professional. Yes, this is a professional podcast, Ron Patton. So, uh, since we're cutting the shit tonight, uh, we got this guy on the phone. Uh, he decided to to be kind and to show up on our podcast. His name is Nick Redfern. Uh, Nick Redfern is one of my favorite authors. Uh, this guy writes books faster than I, I don't know how the hell he does it. He seems to crank out like a hundred a year. Um, and they're all, they're all good. <laughs> he cranks out a hundred a year. I crank out once one every five years and his are still better, but they're, they're really good. Um, I actually have a total obsession with one of his books, uh, about the Collins elite. And I've been going on and on about years or for years about it. Um, but I am not going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to do something different. Uh, but yeah, Nick Redfern's on the phone. Amazing author. I love this guy. He's really cool. Nick Redfern, hello. Hey, guys. How's it going? Going all right. How about you? Good. Oh, I'm good. Thanks. Coping with the uh, Dallas heat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh, how and you... humidity. <laughs> yeah, how, how hot is it there? I'm not sure what it's been today, but it was hot a couple of days ago. We got up to 108. So. You know, it gets up to like 103 here, and I'm just like, my brain is melting. <laughs> I just hate it. Can't stand I, it. I got used to it, but... Um, but you're from England, man. It might be cooler. <laughs> but, but, but you're from England, right? It's like... Well, but, but I have been here like 17 years, so I've got plenty true. of time to get used to because I remember when I was in England, it was like, what? It's 85. People are dying in the streets. That's what it's like. Yeah. If it gets like in the mid 80s, people are like, okay, that's plenty. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm serious. I was watching the BBC and they're like, old people are dying in Birmingham. And I'm like, it's 85. Come on. Anyway. So you have a new book out, I think. Well, yeah, the the most recent one, which came out uh, sort of a month or so ago. That's um, a new book. You know, not all of us can write 100 books a year. <laughs> a month ago is <laughs> a new book, Nick. Come on. <laughs> well, actually, it's not quite that many. I think I've no, done... No, no, it's not. I've done 41 or 42 altogether, so... I swear to and God. And that is over 20 years, so. I swear to God, though, they're all, they really are all good. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. You're welcome. But, uh, yeah, the one I've got out right now, which is uh, like a follow-on to one I did back in 2005 called Body Snatchers in the Desert, which is a study of Roswell. And the new one, which is a sequel, is called The Roswell UFO Conspiracy. Um, but it, both books, um, well, the one is as a sequel to the other, but both of them deal with the, the idea that uh, the, the Roswell event may not have been a UFO event. And it looks at the angle of sort of classified um experiments um human experiments at the height of the cold war and you know post paperclip and you know scientists being brought over and 
high altitude experiments and things like that. So it's sort of um, it was a controversial story because Roswell is the one case within ufology that everybody puts all their hopes on, you know. And um, oh, that's not true. I'm, I'm not at all sure, you know, that it actually was a UFO event. You know, um, I think it's it's an important case regardless of whether it was a UFO event or not, because the either way, you know, the implications for ufology are still going to be huge. Oh, they're massive. I mean, me for one, I don't believe it was aliens. I've, I've just, I mean, when I was a kid, when I, you know, when I first got into UFO stuff, I mean, I was like every other, you know, Joe six pack and I was like, Hey, it's aliens, you know, but no, yeah. I don't think so. Well, I think, you know, if we look at the, the time frame post second world war, you know, you have a lot of the German scientists coming over, uh, Japanese scientists, new technologies, you know, New Mexico, the state where it happened, you know, you got Los Alamos, um, you know, uh, Alamogordo, White Sands, and uh, a lot of weird experiments going on. And, you know, then suddenly out of the blue, something comes down with these, you know, bodies on board or people on board or whatever you want to term right. them. Um, and I think when you look at into those contexts and then you look at, um, you know, the supporting data, because people have often said with the first book and the new one, you know, it's Nick Redfern's theory. It actually isn't. I point out in the new book that the same story that was given to me over the past 30 years or thereabouts, some of the reason about 10 or 15 various organizations like Popular Mechanics, various UFO researchers, were all given aspects of the same story. And it was almost as if somebody on the inside was trying to get it out without compromising themselves. And... Um, and and I think if the truth does come out, I think it will be shown to have been sort of like a, an early post-Second World War experiment involving guinea pig people in high-altitude experiments that involved various craft and also huge balloon arrays as well, which would go some way towards explaining the bodies and the superficially, at least, balloon-type materials found at the site. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I buy that. I mean, personally... I. You know, I'm I'm torn between some sort of uh, strange test or or Germans. You know, I, mm. I I also like the German angle as well. Um, well, I mean, you know, you can tie them together. You know, yeah. with all the science, yeah. the paperclip scientists who came over, and sure. most of them, or a lot of them, came to um, to to New Mexico and Texas. You know, so we're not talking far away from the crash site at all. But I think one of the things a lot of people don't realize, and this is quite a, I, th I think it's a significant thing, is that Matt Brazel, who was the rancher who found the wreckage on his, um, on his ranch, he actually admitted that two, on two previous occasions, uh, military weather devices, obviously this wasn't a weather device, but two uh, military weather devices had come down on the ranch in previous years. So, you know, if it's an alien spacecraft, what are the chances of two military craft coming down and then a, a UFO coming down all on the same ranch? You know, to me, if he's had two military devices come down on the ranch, it's more likely that the third one was a military device as well. And, you know, the reason was because, I mean, the, the ranch, I've actually been there when out in 2010. That ranch is gigantic. I mean, with miles and miles you know, we're not talking, you know, a little farmhouse and a couple of fields. It's gigantic. So, in other words, it takes up a significant portion of, you know, the, the, the area. So it's not surprising that when all sorts of things were being test flown in that area at the time, that, you know, you would have significant pieces and portions of things come down if, you know, particularly failed rocket launches and things like that. Well, I think it's also important to point out that the guys at Roswell you know, Army Airfield did not necessarily know what this thing was. I mean, they, they very, they may very well have said, well, this looks like a UFO because they mm. thought it did, but it doesn't mean that they know what it was. No. And I actually talk about that in the book where there's good evidence that if this was a human experiment, most of the people I interviewed said it was so highly classified that the, when the actual event occurred, that the guys at Roswell were out of the loop yeah. and that they kind of, 
you know, that they legitimately thought that what they have found may well have been flying disc, as that was known at the time, flying disc debris, and then the and the base itself unilaterally put out a statement, we think we've got a flying saucer, and then from there, the higher-ups are like, what the hell are you doing? You know, this is a classified program, and the guys at Roswell are like, well, no one told us, you know. <laughs> that, that happens that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, things are so compartmentalized, too. So, yeah, I can yeah. see why that would yeah. happen. Well, and I think, you know, I think that, that what you're doing is a, a yeoman's task, and I think it's actually really important because I think that now, you know, this these stories have been perpetuated for too long and unchallenged. You know, I think that we have to go back and I think we have to approach it, you know, from a nuts and bolts point of view and actually figure out what some of this stuff was because – I'll tell you, our, you know, our technological development from the mid-1800s to today, you know, is a very different thing than we thought it was. And, you know, I, I think that we're, you know, we had these guys back in the, in the 70s and the 80s. Oh, this is Roswell. You know, we figured it out. You know, Stanton Friedman has been doing the, the cosmic Watergate Roswell story for, you know, his whole career. And I think it's time that, that we go back and challenge it and use the FOIA request and say, you know what, is there another, you know, another option? I mean, I personally, you know, I feel the same way about Betty and Barney Hill. I mean, nobody will touch that story with a 10-foot pole. But the reality of what they actually saw and experienced is radically different from what what we've been told, the movie that we saw with James Earl Jones. You know, so I think that the revisiting Roswell and saying, well, what real, you know, what are other options? Because I, you know, I know you to some extent. I mean, you're you're not the kind of guy where it's like, okay, this is what I figured out. You have to believe this. And every book I've ever read of yours is like, here's the information. You decide. And I, I think that that's important. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I try and present the information as I uncover it and find it and put it out for people to see, um, because I think that's the responsible thing to do. I mean, ironically, if someone said to me. Do I, you know, I, I actually do hope aliens did crash at Roswell because it would actually vindicate everything that the UFO community has said. But in all honesty, I don't think it was extraterrestrial, but I do think the responsibility is on our part to be honest with people who follow the subject and not just give them, you know, what they, what they want to hear. You know, it's like, Greg Bishop calls it UFO porn. You know, it's like more and more exciting stories just oh, yeah. to entertain people. But, you know, if you're going to be honest, you've got to put out what you think is the answer. And I think there are, there are you know, Roswell, the, prob the problem is it's been sort of elevated to such a height that, you know, it's like the old saying, you know, that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And... I think had Roswell just been perceived, like so many other cases, as a genuinely interesting story, but don't put it on a pedestal. But when you put something on a pedestal and it crashes, people really get kind of uh, disillusioned about the wider subject. You know, they say, well, if the best case falls apart, what does that say about the rest? So in other words, but if it hadn't been elevated as the best, it wouldn't have the impact that it will now, you know, if it does collapse and and it's far from the best. I mean, you know, through through my maturation as a researcher, you know, starting out in UFOs and ending up in conspiracies, because the older I got, the more I realized it's all a conspiracy. You know, that's my own perspective, of course. But, you know, I I I have seen dozens of documentaries about Roswell, the the old H. I think it was an HBO movie about Roswell. You know, and, it, and it's like, it, it all, it is, it's like UFO porn. It's always the same thing. And one of the weaknesses is, okay, well, you know, you have this, you know, you have these, these uh, witnesses. Well, they're not really witnesses, <laughs> you know. Well, this is the guy who worked at the radio station who received a phone call. Well, this is the mm. little girl that talked to her dad, you know. I mean, Jesse Marcel, Jesse Marcel Jr. were probably the best and, and, you know, I think you had a situation where Jesse Marcel goes out there and he doesn't know what it is, mm -hmm. you know, and he's trying to rationalize what he's seen because it makes no sense to him. And it very well may not. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and he brings some of this stuff home, and, and maybe it has hieroglyphics on it. The hieroglyphics could have been runic. It could have been Japanese. It could have been, you know, Russian. I mean, it could have been German. It could have been a lot of things. But they can't identify it, and that's all they're saying. They're saying, well, it seemed really light, and I can't identify the, you know, the symbols on it. You know, but that's not that's not proof that it's an alien. No, and I mean, you're, you're, one of the most important things to remember from that time is this was only barely a week after the Kenneth Arnold sighting, the first flying saucer report, just barely a week after. So in other words, when Roswell happened, there wasn't like a, like we've got now, 70 years of lore and folklore and tales and, you know, crop circles, Area 51, crashes, abductions, contactees. There was nothing. So in other words... Flying saucer meant something very different then to what it means today. You know, as I said, today we've got 70 years of hindsight and, and 70 years of reports and books and magazines. Back then, you know, you imagine if the first UFO sighting was today, Roswell was just a week from now, we would, there would be no real thought as to what a flying saucer was. So in other words, when they said they recovered a flying saucer, they weren't talking about how we interpret it today. It was just these strange things that started to be seen, you know, seven days ago, and we think we might have found one, but they weren't talking about it in the context of aliens and greys or anything like that, you know. But I, I think it, I think that actually leads, leads to two larger problems within ufology, the first being this, this concept of disclosure, right, and, and the second being, you know, evidence. And I, you know, I, I think that a lot of people, you know, they keep going back. Well, we want UFO disclosure. We want to know what happened at Roswell. We want UFO disclosure. But it's like, you know, when you look at it through the context of, well, maybe it's not aliens. What disclosure do you think you're going to get? <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, it's like I'm not a fan at all of disclosure. I don't think it's likely to happen. Um, now, I'm not saying there isn't, you know, I, I do believe there's a genuine UFO phenomenon. I'm just not convinced aliens crashed at Roswell. But I do think, you know, there could be more material to, to surface. But the, the big irony is, you know, you've got everybody in ufology pushing for disclosure. But if the government says, we've decided to disclose, and yes, we've had some weird cases, but Roswell really was a military experiment people are going to say, no, that's not real disclosure because aliens crashed at Roswell. In other words, the UFO community or a lot of people in it won't accept it as disclosure unless it actually vindicates what they believe. And so that's, you know, ironically, that's, that makes me have sort of sympathy for the government because they're like in, in this position where if they don't disclose, they're the bad guys. And if they do disclose and it's not what people want to hear... They're the bad guys, you know. Um, and so, you know, th- th- there is that as well, the idea. I mean, it's like, say, for example, if the government said, yes, aliens did crash at Roswell, but cattle mutilations were part of a clandestine bio-warfare program. People who hang on to the idea that cattle mutes are extraterrestrial events, they wouldn't accept that. So, in other words... Even if disclosure happens, as I said, if, if ufology isn't prepared to have some of their major cases sort of blown out the window, they're not going to accept it, you know. No, they're they're not. And I, and I think that the other problem is that at this point there are too many. Now, you know, I, I wrote a couple books, right, on the table. I wrote a couple books. I sell them. You've written 41 books. You sell them. But it's not it's not like you and I are getting rich off this and it's not yeah. like you know we're in it for the money. But it, there are people who are and and I think they keep preaching this disclosure bandwagon and I think they keep you know saying well we we're you know we're going to be ready we're going to train you to meet aliens. Well, you know what? The truth is is that I too believe in aliens. Don't get me wrong. I just I don't think they crashed at Roswell either. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But if they were to land, right, I think it'd be like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It'd be on the backside of a mountain. You know, they, they'd, they'd nerve gas all the cattle. They'd tell everybody that, that there's a nuclear reactor that's about to explode. And they mm-hmm. would do it covertly. 
and it, you know, and these guys would have been trained for decades to deal with it. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that one day they're just going to wake up and do it. I mean, and and I look at you know whatever you think about it. I look at the old Bob Oshler thing. You know, with Cosmic Journey, it's like that was a thought through oh, yeah. exercise. Whether you believe that it's that it's true or not, I happen to believe that Cosmic Journey may have been at least partially true. But mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, even if you don't, somebody put a lot of effort into that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and they were preparing for something. But mm-hmm. it's but even then, I mean, can you trust it? <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know. I mean, there's there's so many. You know, look at the UFO subject and the stories coming out. You know, we've got disinformation and you've also got people who are just fantasists and wannabes and Walter Mitty types, you know. Uh, and then you've got real cases. So it, it does become, you know, become problematic when you're trying to figure out what the real picture is, you know, if, if anybody knows the real picture. Um, but, you know, that that's what we're up against, unfortunately. And... Um, you know, I mean, to what extent we'll ever get answers? I mean, people don't want to hear that. They want they want to know that in their lifetime they're going to get the answers. But who knows if we will or not? I mean, all we can do is just keep pushing and try and figure out what's going on. But uh, even then, you know, I mean, we still have to sort of wonder if we will get the answers ever. Well, I think I think that the the approach. I mean, my own personal opinion on it, and what I've tried to do. Is it, and you know, people could argue that I'm fantasy prone after reading the books that I wrote. But what I what I personally try to do is I say, you know what, I'm just going to try to find something that I can reasonably prove. And I think that that's the thing that's been lost. That that there, you know, now there are emerging people that wake up one morning and say, you know, there are, you know, there are orange orange uh, feathered serpents flying through the air from you know from Alderbaran. And and they're going to save us, and and there's no evidence of it, you know. But they can put on a headset and tell everybody this, and then suddenly everybody believes them. So you know, I I do I think that it's we're at a point now where, you know, we kind of have to jettison this. Well, we'll believe whatever anybody says, and and start to revisit these various cases, whether it's Betty and Barney Hill, or whether it's Roswell or Kingman or, you know, all these different ones. I think we need a Shag Harbor. I think we need to go back. And, and, uh, you know, look at them and try to go from a nuts and bolts point of view, because I think that that, that nuts and boltsness has been lost, you know, and, and I think the MUFON and some of these other groups that were originally very dedicated to nuts and bolts, I think that they lost their soul, whether it's because they sold, you know, everything to Bigelow or, or whatever. I think a lot of these guys have lost their souls. Mm-hmm. And and I think that we need to, as a group, we need to say, you know what, I've had it. I'm going to go back to, to re- actually researching stuff. Because I know you, you put an incredible amount of effort into researching these books. I mean, you it is nonstop for you. You know, and I well, respect you know, that. I mean, well, I mean, I, I do, you know, like I said, I, I try and take like a journalistic approach and just go with the data and the evidence and find as much data and evidence as possible. You know, I think that's the responsible way to do it but i think you know there's there's definitely sort of been a like a crossover point in the last few years where it's sort of seemed more particularly with tv we want entertainment we don't care about getting the answers we just we just want a show where we can sell you know 10 episodes or something and if it doesn't work out well we'll make a cooking show after that or a dancing show you know and um and hey, that's I, I like how it works. I like Gordon Ramsay. All things on the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not bad. That's a pretty good show. But um, but it, you know, it's kind of like yeah, I get it. You know, you have to entertain people. But I think what's happened, there's been like the lines being crossed where you have these sort of so-called reality shows where they just fabricate it. You know, it's <laughs> just it's just purely fabrication. Um, you know, somebody's in the woods. What was that? Right. It's big. No, it's actually just the sound guy, you know, being ordered to break a branch or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's so many of those reality shows now that are just, basically, they're just sort of like regurgitating other type of stories or other type of shows, but they have some sort of flair or flavor, you know, like, uh, 
you know, down in the bayou, Bigfoot down in the bayou or whatever, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. Deadly as and, uh, you know, it does, I mean, the ironic thing is these shows could actually make a decent show without having to fabricate stuff or exaggerate. You know, they could just legitimately yeah. go somewhere and, and film some interesting people. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. But that's hard work. <laughs> so yeah, they yeah. don't do it. Yeah. You actually have to research stuff. Gee, go for it. Yeah, exactly. But I think there's also this notion of laziness now where people are like, well, I'm going to pay 400 bucks for a weekend. I'm going to go. Some guys are going to, with nice suits are going to, or nice, you know, linen outfits are going to stand on a, on a, you know, pedestal and say, this is what you should believe. I mean, I, I recently went to one of these and I was standing at the, at my table with all my books, you know, all these books I'm trying to sell and magazines and all this crap. And, and somebody told me that they heard this theory that, that Antarctica used to be Atlantis. And I'm like, well, I don't know how that would work because Atlantis was beyond the pillars of Hercules somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. So how would it go from being in the Atlantic Ocean to being in the pole? Well, it just, there was a really bad earthquake. I'm like, no, that's beyond a really <laughs> bad earthquake. I mean, that's like Velikovsky, yeah. catastrophism, tearing the earth apart kind of earthquake. <laughs> you know, but I, I remember another one. This person calls himself like a cosmic anthropologist. You know, mm -hmm. I spent five years in college studying that crap. And I'm telling you, what these what this person was, was telling me had no basis in reality. Hey, but it sounded good. But it sounded good. And people are people want to believe. And because they want to believe, you can feed them crap and they'll listen, mm -hmm. you know? Yep, that happens and I mean, you know, I mean you can find that in a lot of sort of walks of life, you know, people are comfortable hearing what they want to hear, you know, whether it's from somebody in ufology or ghost hunting or in politics or in the church. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you can sort of apply that anywhere, really. I think that kind of says more about people than it just does about, you know, people in ufology. It's just, it's people you know, in people, people in general, yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of recognize it more, I guess, you know, in a, in a fairly sort of small field like this you know everybody kind of sees what's going on and breaking news everybody kind of gets it whether they buy into it or they ignore it or whatever but um you know there's there's plenty of ways ufology could be bettered you know could be made better but you know as i said it's become it's become it's becoming more sort of entertainment than it is you know looking for answers i think so and I think there's some people, probably perhaps not consciously, but they want to perpetuate the mystery rather than actually solve it because keeping the mystery going is, is good because people like mysteries. So. That's true. No, that's, that's very true. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the topic because I, I think we beat that one to death. <laughs> <laughs> so recently, uh, you, you called me up and uh, you wanted to, to talk Slender Man. Yeah, well, I knew you'd sort of you got you know you'd done the um, like the special edition almost on the ma the magazine about the Slender Man, and um, I've got a book coming out on the Slender Man in February. Well, actually, I think it probably be out before that, sort of shortly after Christmas, um, and um, and you know sort of get your views on it, and um, because you know the the Slender Man mystery is one that sort of fascinated me from when it began because it was such a a weird thing and it took off so quickly and you know it became it became like a phenomenon it became like a meme um and and then of course people started claiming to have seen the slender man in the real world even though it was you know absolutely an internet creation which sort of brings into things like um uh, tulpas thought forms and stuff like chaos magic you know invoking and creating things so, um, so basically, that's the sort of the theme of the book. It's going to sort of look at all the the history, the different theories, the case files, the you know the sort of first uh, Slenderman versus the second one. You know, the first one being the internet creation, then the Tulpa, um, and sort of look at all the different angles and, and theories, and um, you know, try and put together like a cohesive study of the entire phenomenon since it 
you know, began in 2009. So, so you know, we had a, a very interesting conversation about it. Yeah. But the the one thing I, I am very curious about is, you know, so far you've obviously done quite a bit of research on it. You know, what what are you leaning toward? I mean, you're, you are a Fortean, Nick. You are a straight-up yeah. Fortean. You know, you do cryptozoology, you do UFOs, you do conspiracies, ghosts. I mean, you run the gambit. So I, I'm very interested to hear on what you actually, you know, what you're kind of leaning toward non-committally as the Slender Man. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I can commit to it, right? I mean, I, there's no doubt at all that, you know, the when Eric Knudsen, the guy who essentially created it, you know, and it was posted, the pictures were posted to something awful, and then it really kind of took off from there. Um, you know, that he absolutely did create that. But mm-hmm. one of the things I talk about in the book is how, um, you know, he his inspirations um, for the Slenderman when he created it were actually some of the like pre-existing supernatural archetypes in many respects, like um, like the Men in Black. Um, it was also inspired by the the Mad Gasser of Mattoon story, um, and a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's work, which some researchers believe, you know, are actually inspired not by just vivid dreams, but by Lovecraft having glimpses of real supernatural realms. Um, so, in other words. Even from the very beginning as an internet creation, it was inspired by real supernatural entities. And I point that out, you know, I think that's an important thing. But I do think there's a great deal of merit in the idea, like the thought form idea, that it took off so incredibly fast and attracted, you know, the attention of literally hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even more, possibly millions. You know, many of them sort of young kids, teenagers, quite impressionable so they get gripped by this and come to believe it and then suddenly people start seeing it and I I actually do think there is something solid to the idea of tulpas and thought forms and and you know manifesting something that actually started in the field of imagination or fiction you know that it can actually be brought I would say to life in the way we have life but in in some sort of kind of hazy version of of an existence you know well you know you know what's interesting about that is that when we were talking about that in the tulpas because i i believe that it's a that you know it started out as an internet you know meme and it eventually enough people who were impressionable thought it was real and it became a tulpa a thought Mm -hmm. form but the interesting thing that dawned on me after our conversation is you know that that's basically forbidden planet right that here, you know, you've yeah. got Leslie Nielsen lands. He says hi to Walter Pigeon. Walter Pigeon shows him this ex- this extinct society, uh, the Krill. Uh, I think it was mm-hmm. a Krill or something like that. And they had they had tried to purge themselves of all evil and badness. Yeah. And it's it's basically a you know it's the whole ego super ego id thing. And they had taken the id out of all of them the entire like civilization had removed their ids but in doing that they had put their ids into one uh one amorphous entity that actually ended up killing them and yeah that's that's a perfect example you're right yeah yeah and um it struck me (laughs) i mean another good one would be from the 70s that if you if you know of it the so-called philip experiments um, where in, in Canada you had this um, psychic research team that essentially decided to create an experiment where they created this fictionalized English um, Middle Ages character and, and gave him a name, Philip, and a family, and a wife, and a, you know how he lived, etc. And then they tried to communicate with him, even though they'd created him, and they actually got a response. And the response was from the creed or the entity, the man, if you like, the ghostly spirit of him, that they literally 100% created. But he replied to them and then started to fill in gaps in the story. And again, mm-hmm. that's kind of the same thing. You know, you you sit down, you concentrate, you focus on something. and And in a strange way, 
you you can create it. And I mean, I sometimes wonder if that might explain certain things like lake monsters and Bigfoot type creatures. The idea that in our kind of subconscious, you know, you look out at a foggy lake early one morning and you think, I wonder what could be in there. You know what I mean? Or what's what's lurking in the woods? And the more we think about that, maybe it kind of spontaneously or or over time creates sort of a, a toll perversion, you know, along those lines. The idea that sort of, you know, foggy woods and, and you know, spooky lakes surrounded by mountains. You don't just think they're spooky. You People are inclined to think, I wonder what's in there, you know. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps concentrating on that question, what could be in there, maybe creates fleeting tulpa-like views of something like a plesiosaur, but, you know, it, it actually isn't. So. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. You know, I think there are many times, even with UFOs, where, you know, people will want to believe so badly that they project somehow, and they have an experience based on that. That's Yeah, and I mean, a good, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. I don't know if you know this, but Alan Moore, who did, like, the Vapor Vendetta um, comic books and, um, you know, then made into the movie. Well, you know, the, his, his comic book series, John Constantine, which was made into the Constantine movie with Keanu Reeves. Right. Um, he, he actually has gone on record, Alan Moore is saying that shortly after, or not long after he and a couple of his colleagues created the John Constantine character, he actually saw John Constantine walk past him in London and gave him like this sort of weird smile, like a conspiratorial smile and wearing exactly the same clothes and hairstyle that um, he'd created. And even today he said it still freaks him out that it was, you know, it was his creation and walked right past him. That is creepy. Yeah. That, that is really creepy. Yeah, it is. (laughs) That is. But, You know, I mean, how it happens, I mean, that's a big question. But, I mean, I mean, a, a good book for people who want to read about that would be um, Dion Fortune's book, Psychic Self-Defense, or um, Alexandra, um, Dave, excuse me, Alexandra David Neal's book, um, Mysteries in, uh, Magic and Mysteries in Tibet, where both, um, both women tried and succeeded to create um, Tolpa-like beings and... Both of them, particularly Alexander um, David Neal, she actually created this sort of jolly Friar Tuck type character, which over time progressively got more and more sinister and evil and, you know, became a danger to her. And she had to sort of deconstruct it from her mind rather than construct it. And apparently took months and months to do that because, it, you know, it was clinging onto its life, so to speak. That's also very creepy. Yeah. <laughs> that that is creepy. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I guess I better be careful what I dream about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you might see it, uh, you know, appearing. <laughs> but I, I like I said, I mean joking aside, you know, when you get these kind of sightings of certain cryptids and then there's a sudden wave in one area and then they're gone and then they suddenly pop in in another area. It does make me think, you know, if the people in that little town, they're all focusing on it, and that's why there's like a month-long wave, you know, and then and then it all, it all quietens down, they stop thinking about it, and so the creature kind of deconstructs, and then it starts again somewhere else, you know. Maybe that's why, even with like the Loch Ness Monster, there aren't many reports, but sometimes there are years of clusters of sightings perhaps you know it's when people have people are thinking about it so they appear people stop thinking about it for 10 years it doesn't appear mm-hmm. no that makes sense i mean you know there there are other there are other cases i mean the i for, i think it's called like phantasmagoria there's a very old book about somebody who appeared in two places at once you know so i mean there's there's all kinds of astral projection and i mean a lot of weird things that that do kind of relate to that that notion of being able to construct yourself or construct another entity out of thin air Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean you know i I think 
when you look at the, the stories on record, it's almost as if anybody can do this if you put your mind to it. Um, yeah. Without actually, ironically, without actually knowing how you're doing it. It's mm-hmm. just the process of doing it, concentrating and, you know, really creating in your mind a solid image of something um, and just keep thinking about it, him, her, right. whatever it is. And, you know, the clothing, the hair, the eyes, everything. Right. And eventually, you know, the, then people start to see it. Yeah, well, it's but like Alan, a form. Alan Moore form is one of the sort of the weirdest of all. Yeah. Wouldn't you uh, consider it like a form of psychokinesis? You know, like projecting? Well, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it could be something along those lines. Um but again, I think the most important thing of all is that, you know, it's sort of internal to us, even though it can be externalized and take on its own will, if you like. Right. It's still something that's created from what's deeply buried in our subconscious. And maybe, um, you know, I mean, just to come back to things like Bigfoot, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. perhaps one of the reasons is that, you know, if we, if things like inherited memories, if you look at the things that existed tens of thousands of years ago, or hundreds of thousands of years ago, they're kind of like um, a distorted version of what we get today. We get ape men, you know. We get gigantic birds, pterodactyl-type things that people, you know, still see to this day, but, um, you know, clearly became extinct millions of years ago. And strange creatures in, you know, lakes and rivers and whatever. Um, so in other words, you know, Millions of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, there were ape men, you know. There were um, gigantic creatures that flew in the skies. So, and, you know, there were things that lived in the lakes and oceans that were very dangerous. Um, so, in other words, I sometimes wonder, because these are broadly similar to what we see today with these sort of paranormal pterodactyls and Bigfoot and lake monsters, if it's sort of a subconscious tulpa that you know things like inherited memory in the past we were frightened and threatened by these creatures you know, when we were living in caves and we had to be careful of them um and today in a slightly altered way we still see the same things you know um so i wonder if that's sort of like an ongoing kind of tulpa you know it's sort of like an inherited memory of the type of creatures that were a threat to us, we're still seeing them in, in, to some degree to this day. Well, you know, they, they say that the the, uh, pol- the poltergeist activity, you know, is a, is a form of psychokinesis, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe it's something along those lines, because, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good analogy, you know, yeah. the whole issue of, you know, poltergeist activity actually being caused by the victim themselves, you know. Yeah, I mean, what is it that, that there's a tendency for... Uh, you know, for adolescent and and uh, teenage uh, boys and girls, you know, they're mm-hmm. going through a lot of changes in their bodies and their hormones are kind of going crazy. And then, oops, here's the poltergeist. Yeah. You know, that that seems I, – I forget where I read that, but there's like a tendency for poltergeist activity to hover around, you know, adolescents that are going through, you know, going through their, their evolution, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you one weird story that happened to me. This is about... Please. But it was when I lived over here, but it wasn't long after I came over, so probably 16, 17 years ago. And I was doing some research onto these reports of these so-called phantom black dogs that uh, with like, the fiery red eyes, which actually inspired Conan Doyle to write the Pound of the Baskervilles novel. And I was doing some research because his, you know, his novel was based on pre-existing reports in the UK of these um, sort of ghostly black dogs. Now, as I said, this was over here, though. And I was driving home late one Saturday night, and I saw what at first looked like a large black dog, but really weird-looking, cross the road. But it actually, what it was, I actually, as I got closer, it was just a, it was a concentration of, of angled shadows coming from, one was from the street light and one was from something else. And anyway, it kind of briefly, very, very briefly took on the form of what looked like a large dog. But it, but it wasn't. But it was, it was as if the fact that I was doing this research at that time, it was almost as if, like, 
reality was playing games by ensuring that I actually got to see a weird formation of shadows that actually looked like a large dog. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, um, that, and that was, that was kind of strange. Well, I got one for you. So, uh, you know, I, I was going through some stuff and, um, I, I tend like many, uh, conspiracy researchers and 14s. I do consider myself a 14 as well. Like many 14s and others, um, you know, I suffer from a tad bit of insomnia. And so, you know, I, I basically try to stay up until I get sleepy, right? And so one night, um, I went out to the curb in front of my house and I was tired. So I just sat down on the curb, you know, there was, I mean, it's like two in the morning. There's nobody up. I'm like, who gives a shit? I'm going to sit on the curb because I can. And I'm sitting out there and I had a cigarette and nobody should smoke. Smoking is terrible, but I had a cigarette (laughs) and I'm sitting there and I live across the street from a park, a really big park. And we have coyotes and other stuff. Um, and normally, you know, you'll see them at a distance because they don't really like people that much. And they're scraggly and thin and emaciated sometimes. And they're they're matted and, you know, they're kind of gross and wild, right? Well, I'm sitting, I'm sitting there. And the big thing that I'm thinking at the time is, you know, I've, I'm trying to reason out these things that, that are, have happened to me. And I, I'm trying to understand them and... I'm like, you know, you know, universe, just give me a sign, right? I'm like everybody else. You know, I have a challenge. It's like something's weird at work or Ron is being weird. And I'll just be like, as usual, as usual. <laughs> I'm like, give me a sign. Tell me what to do, right? Because I don't want to, I'm lazy. I don't want to figure it out. So I'm sitting there on the, on the curb and right past me, trotting down the middle of the street is a white coyote. I mean, it is like an albino coyote, but the eyes are not albino, but it is like, it is just like white as white, white as snow. And it was not thin. It was very healthy, trotting down the middle of my street toward the park. And it stopped, it turned, it looked at me and I'm sitting there with the cigarette hanging out of my mouth, like I'm going to die. Um, and it just kind of looked back and just trotted on and it, and it trotted along and there were no cars. It trotted over into the park. It got into the parking lot, kind of veered left and vanished. And I have tried for a year to almost a year to try to figure out what the hell that was. And, you know, the native Americans in this area had a belief that the coyote is a trickster, which is fairly common. And if it traveled from east to west, that meant that you were going to have good luck. If it traveled from west to east, that meant that you were going to have bad luck. Well, it traveled west. I didn't know that at the time. But it's like, you know, I'm thinking to myself at, the, at that time, I need a sign. I need to know what to do. And, and suddenly this thing appears, this total mind-bending conundrum appears in front of me. And it's <laughs> like, did I create that with my own mind? Was that a ghostly apparition? Was that a, you know, I mean, what the hell was it? I still don't know. Well, I think, you know, at some point, most people in their lives, you know, they put, whether they, you know, they consider it a prayer or, you know, just putting a thought out. But something, something seems to respond. And sometimes it's in such a really visible way that it just clearly was not a coincidence, you know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's I, I think that when you put yourself out there and you're putting these thoughts into the universe, sometimes the universe responds. You know, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Kroeber. Uh, I've said this before on the podcast. That Kroeber, uh, who is the big anthropologist out of UC Berkeley, he did this stuff with Ishi. Kroeber believed in this thing called the super organic, which was like an amorphous cloud of of thought and culture that in, in, encompassed the earth. And then we all kind of jacked into it. You know, some people call it the Akashic Record or whatever. But I, I wonder sometimes if I didn't manifest that coyote to give myself something to think about. You know, it, you might well have done, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the big question is, you know, is it all internal or is there sort of an external aspect to it, you know? Um, 
or is it a combination of the two? It's sort right. of, you know, it's, it's difficult to know. The, the only thing I can sort of say for sure from my perspective is I don't think reality as we see it is all that it is. You know, we live in, you know, our, our reality, but I don't think we understand the full scope of what it actually is. No, and, and you know, the with the, the phenomenon of time slips and vor, vortexes and other stuff, I mean, just go to the Oregon vortex and that'll blow your mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that <clears throat> fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. I don't know. It, it's always a mind bender. And you know, the problem with you is that there's too many things we can talk about. <laughs> so. Well, you know, that, that's. Uh, I guess it can be a problem, but uh, you yes. know, it, the world would be kind of a duller place if there wasn't all this. You know? That's true. If it was just. Black and white, it's this, it's that, and that's it. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was this this idea that maybe that Lovecraft had seen, and it kind of goes to the Tulpa thing, that Lovecraft had seen other realities. You know, I remember um, back when uh, oh, Ian Punnett was the oh yeah was the Saturday was the weekend host for Coast to Coast. I don't remember the guy's name, but he was a horror writer. And he was he was coming on. I was driving somewhere, and he was he had come on the show to talk about overcoming like schizophrenia. I think it was schizophrenia, and and how he had, you know, he had channeled some of his schizophrenia into it into his books, which were very popular, and and how he had learned to control the paranoia, and he was taking medication or whatever, and he. I've got to find the show. He he comes on and he's all, oh no, that's all BS. And and poor Ian Punnett, he you know he doesn't know how to react to this. And he's like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm off my meds now. <laughs> and and Ian Punnett's like, well, you should you know the doctor prescribed your meds. You should really take them. You know. And he's like, no no no, they were they were without them. I can see the whole. I can see things as they are. And with them, it's it dulls my it dulls my ability to see the the world as it actually is. And Ian Punnett's like something to the I'm paraphrasing, of course, something to the effect of, "Well, what do you actually see?" And he's like, "I see my books." And he's like, "I don't understand," because you know he hadn't read them, right? I don't understand. He says, "Okay, well, let me explain it to you." He's like, "One day I left the hospital." And I'm walking out of the hospital, and I can see demons flying through the sky, you know, <laughs> shooting fireballs at each other. And he's like, now, as I walk along, I can see demons walking on the earth next to me. And it's wow. like and it's like at some level, you know, you want to say, okay, dude, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. But is he really? Or is he glimpsing, is he sensitive and glimpsing some other reality? some fourth dimensional space that we don't understand right is he well you know kind of plugged into something i mean it could be i mean for example there's a guy named donald tyson who wrote a book all about um lovecraft and the idea that his dreams because he had really vivid dreams which he would then you know turn them into a story um and but he in his book donald tyson he talks about how the idea that the dream world, you know, isn't just the product of our um, imagination, you know, the, the sort of like, you know, astral planes or possibly we actually go to different realms when we dream, you know. And um, he talks quite extensively in that book about how the idea of um, some of the things that, or if a lot of the things, if not all the things that Lovecraft dreamed about in these very vivid sort of horrific dreams were actually glimpses of some other reality. And uh, an example is that he, Lovecraft claimed to have seen these creatures known as night gaunts, which would um, turn up in his bedroom at night when he was a child. And they were sort of malevolent and faceless. And that faceless angle was actually one of the, the inspirations for Eric Knudsen with the Slender Man, because the Slender Man has no face. Yeah, that no was face. actually one of the inspirations. Um, but his, um, Lovecraft's mother, Susie, um, she began to see them as well, but in the waking state, not sleeping. So it was almost as if, you know, Lovecraft had dreamed about real entities and somehow then they'd sort of started manifesting in the family home as well. So, uh, 
you know, it does make you wonder what reality is and dreams and, you know, are we really dreaming or are we actually going into some sort of temporary matrix-type world that seems really real at the time we're dreaming it, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this, but when I was a, but you're the perfect guy to mention it too. <laughs> when I was a little kid, <clears throat> I had a, I had a, a few paranormal things happen to me. And, you know, I've always, through my whole life, I've had paranormal stuff happen to me. That's why I'm a 14, right? And I remember very vividly that I, I, I used to get scared at night and I would sleep in between my parents. It's not all that uncommon. And so <clears throat> one night I'm, I'm sleeping and I, you know, I was probably eight years old. I mean, I wasn't very old, not even eight, you know, not even eight years old, maybe seven, seven and eight or eight. And I'm sleeping and I woke up and I was, I swear to God, I was not sleeping. And I, I sat up and there was a small man standing at the foot of my parents' bed as you know maybe two feet tall if maybe a foot tall and he was kind of it's hard to explain i can still see it but he was kind of leprechaun-y mm -hmm. but but like like uh, a gnome or something or? no not like a gnome because you know i'm scandinavian we got this idea of right. gnomes with little red hats and shit right right scarier than that okay you know, more like Leprechaun in the Hood. Right? Gotcha. <laughs> and this little guy is standing on the foot of the bed. And I'm, I sat up and I'm looking at him like, what the hell, you know? And he, and he looked at me and he pointed at me and he said, go back to sleep. And I'm like, but, but what, what? He's all, go to sleep now. And I'm like, okay. And I laid down and I went right back to sleep. And to this day, I still don't know what the hell that was. And I'm pretty damn sure I was awake. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I, I think I think about we had a, a very interesting guy on named Hercules Invictus. And, uh -huh. you know, he he has communicated with uh, gods um, like, uh, you know, like Greco Roman gods. Mm -hmm. And he'll tell you the story of walking down the street and seeing. I forget what he called them, but they were like little people like running around and little thought forms, like running around in the snow and making things. And he said they'd turn into cars and they were very, very goofy, but you know, fundamentally it's still the same thing. I'm, I'm seven years old. I'm laying on my bed in my parents' bed, my parents on either side of me, I wake up and there's like a little troll guy standing on the foot of my bed. And I'm like, what the fuck are you? You know? I think, you know, when you're a kid, you do get that. You know, people say, you know, perhaps we're not quite, when you're a kid, you're not sort of saturated in just, you know, the adult world and things are more simpler and your minds are more open to, you know, things that we're told later on, but you shouldn't think about that. Just stupid, you know. Right. So maybe we do get, you know, the more open you are, the, the better a glimpse you get. I mean, I think all, maybe that's why kids are, you know, some all around the world, it matter if you're from England, America, or anywhere, you know, everybody kind of has that thing about when you're a little kid, there's something under the bed or in the cupboard. Well, maybe there is, you maybe know, there is, not, yeah. not physically there, but something that can kind of get its grips and, and kind of hovers around you when you're a kid. And maybe that explains, you know, that angle of why, you know, a closet when you go to bed becomes something to be feared, you know. I mean, the the only thing, two things as an adult that I could come up with, and being a 14, you know, um, is that either I saw some sort of trans-dimensional being, interdimensional being, who was there for some reason and didn't want me to see him, or, you know, I manifested it. Mm -hmm. That, you know, he was a boogie, he was my boogeyman, and I wanted to see him, so I did. But I'll tell you, I, for the life of me, man, I don't know what that was. It's bizarre. I don't think I've ever really talked about that, but it, it was peculiar. There was one other thing that happened to me, but I think I was dreaming. But man, you know, these, these things that you're talking about and that you write about, I mean, they do exist in some capacity. It's just, we can't seem to figure out what they are, you know? And maybe, yeah. And I think that's 
Yeah, and I think when it comes to things like dreams, you know, if dreams aren't just dreams, then that kind of, you know, kind of suggests that, well, potentially we could see anything, you know, if uh, if there's a dream world which doesn't have boundaries because it's not fully physical, you know, maybe that could explain why multiple kids, you know, can see lots of different things, but they all appear in the bedroom, you know. Well, I, I firmly believe that Cthulhu is sleeping down there and Rylos somewhere. He's coming for mm-hmm. us. So now <laughs> we're we're at about an hour, and it's our podcast. Um, so why don't you tell people where they can find your books? Um, you know, I guess you've got the Roswell book out now. You've got the Slender Man one coming. You know, where do people find you? Um, well, I've got a blog. Um, if you just Google Nick Redfern, World of Whatever, that's the name of my blog, and I update that most days. And um, it's got all the latest art- links to articles I've written or whatever's going on, uh, lectures, conference news, or just breaking news on different things. And uh, as far as the, the books are concerned, um, they're all available on Amazon, and probably um, 50 60% you can get also get off the shelves in Barnes & Noble. And uh, as you said, I've got the Roswell... UFO conspiracy out now. Slender Man will be out just after the um, end of the year. But I've got one coming out in September called Shapeshifters, which is a, a study throughout history of various creatures associated with shapeshifters. So there's a couple of chapters, obviously, on werewolves and things like that. But also, you know, it looks at um, sort of a lot of lesser known um, shapeshifters, for example. Um, in the same way you have werewolves, you know, in Africa there are legends of were-cats, were-hyenas, were-leopards, and that sort of gets into this issues of, like, leopard cults. And um, and also I've got some really weird stories of things like Men in Black. Uh, the person's seen a man in black and it suddenly morphed into, like, a ball of light and vanished. So a lot of, a lot of really weird stuff like that as well. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to have to have you back, Nick. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll make sure you get copies of the book. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've got to definitely have you back to talk about that. Right. There's one other thing, though, I wanted to talk to you about. Go for it. And um, Nick, did you realize that you actually have a an article in Paranoia Magazine called Secret Bases on the Moon, which was featured in a major motion picture? Oh, yes. Well, the, the article was. Yes. Yeah, it it was actually featured in the movie Pixels with uh, Adam Sandler and uh, who's the other guy, Kevin James. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, what and you so... Mean, you mean the so, camera pan it or something? So what what I'm going to have to do is get a screenshot. I think, um, I think Olaf, didn't you get a screenshot of that one time? Yeah, but, uh, I did. We'll, we'll try to find it. Yeah. But anyway, what happened is the uh, movie company... Um, asked me if I had any uh, issues of paranoia that I wanted to submit, and they were going to try to somehow get it into the movie. And, uh, you know, I hadn't heard from them in over a year, so I thought, eh, oh well, you know, guess they didn't want it. And then, um, so I was, uh, and I also emailed them and said, hey, did it make the cut? And they go, well, we're not sure yet. We're still working on it. And so, you know, I just figured, hey, the movie's out. Didn't hear from them. And so I was watching it, and I slowed the movie down. You know, I had the DVD, and all of a sudden, there it is. Uh, Basically, I think Kevin James, he lives in his mom's basement, and he's like this uh, conspiracy guy who's all into aliens and stuff. And he has all these newspaper articles and magazine articles, and lo and behold, there's the Paranoia article. Oh, yes. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. (laughs) I know. So we'll get that for you. So I just want to let you know. That yeah, you're cool. you're featured in a major motion picture. Oh, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that is another amazing paranoia podcast. Uh, as I said, I'm Olav. He's Ron. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, check us out on Facebook. We're on Facebook, paranoiamagazine.com. We're on Instagram, paranoia mags. We're on twitter paranoia mag uh i don't know we sell our books and magazines on amazon uh, you can get them at paranoiapublishing.com or lulu um, we also broadcast on shortwave on 60 70 kilohertz in europe 
if you do hear us someday, I'm going to get around to getting some QSL cards made. I'm sorry. I'll get to it. Um, yeah. But you know what? Uh, I got a lot going on. Uh, we have a Roku channel coming. Um, yeehaw! Yeehaw! What's it going to be called? Paranoia TV? Paran- no, the Paranoia channel. Oh, okay. Better yet. Paranoia. The Paranoia channel. Um, I think that's it. <clears throat> so, everybody, uh, be excellent to one another. Take good care and keep the faith. All right. Bye, guys. Uh, have a nice night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Sponsored by Paranoia Magazine. Read it now. Paranoiamagazine.com Intro theme, The Guide, was composed by Scott Moon. ScottMoon.net Outro theme, Fighting Trousers, is by Professor Elemental. ProfessorElemental.com Voiceover written and performed by Mr. Lobo, host of Cinema Insomnia. Watch new episodes on OSI 74. Visit us at OSI74.com. We are resuming control. For now.